This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, Alice Brennan here and welcome to Background Briefing. Today we are setting sail on the high seas. We are start now scraping the dust, chipping the rust until and after chipping we sweeping, after sweeping we mop. Men in blue overalls and white hard hats look like minifigures swallowed by a giant mechanical beast. Ridged red walls of steel tower around them, 17 metres high. Uh, yes, you can say it's like a stadium. It's like a gymnasium. It might look like a stadium, but there is no sport being played here. Thanks to God that the weather is good. A bright blue sky looms high above them, but these men are working below the surface of the ocean. They're cold and they can't escape. They're effectively trapped on a floating sweatshop in the middle of the Pacific, working 12 hours a day, six days a week, and another eight hours on a Sunday. They're in the belly of a massive cargo ship, and because of the pandemic, they can't get off. This guy is 16 months on board. Also this one. Ronbert Bibat is one of those guys who's stuck on the ship. He's been there for well over a year. He's a 41-year-old Filipino with a goofy grin and a cherubic face. His home is where his wife and two daughters are, half a world away in Zamboanga in the southern Philippines. Ronbert wants to get home in time for his eldest daughter Ronica's 15th birthday, but he's braced for disappointment. I hope on her birthday, I I will be there, but I don't know if I can participate. For now, working on this ship is his only certainty. Sergey, where are you? When we can uh, go ashore or go home? He said to me, I don't know. As they scrape the rust off the hull, Rombert needles his workmates about the fact that they've got no idea when they're going to get home. Who can save us? Here on bulk carrier, the MV Starlight, hope has become something of a joke. Michael, when we can go home? I don't know. He it doesn't don't. matter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't matter anymore. He said he was just losing his hope. Rombert signed on to the ship in July 2019. It was meant to be his last nine months away from the family so he could help fund a small shop in Mindanao. But Rombert stopped promising his two young daughters that he'll be home anytime soon. I I, I feel uh, very, very sad. I'm longing for so long to go home. Port and border restrictions enforced to stall the spread of COVID-19 have in fact prevented thousands of workers from getting home. Background briefing reporter Jeff Thompson's been investigating what's going on and he's been speaking to the people who crew these boats, people just like Rombert. Jeff, how many Romberts are out there stuck on ships at sea? Well, Alice, there's estimates around that there could be 400,000 of these seafarers stuck on their ships, and some of them have been there for as long as 20 months. 20 months. That's nearly two years. 
And how did you get in touch with Rombert? Well, we came across Rombert because he put a message up on a Facebook page saying something like, please help me, I'm 14 months on board, help me, help me, God bless, something like that. We followed that up and because sometimes these guys have internet connections and he was on Messenger, uh, so I rang him up and, and had a chat and I told him that I'd keep checking in on him to see how his campaign to get off the ship was going. And, and you did keep checking in on him, Yeah, right? it was difficult, but uh, we kept um, checking up on him. And also at the same time, I started to dig into what was actually happening here in Australia with the ports. And the more I looked into it, what really sort of woke me up is just how much we depend on these guys to, to get all the stuff we like in Australia into the country. I'm standing in my kitchen making a coffee. And as I look around me, just about everything in here came here via a ship. The coffee machine, the coffee that's going through it, the fridge, the pantry cupboard next to it, my stove, the dishwasher. And in the adjoining room, there's the TV, a fair bit of the furniture, the electronics. On my home desk, there's my laptop and there's my phone. All of this stuff came here via the labour of the guys on these ships. And as I head out to my car, well, that came here on a ship too, as along with just about all of the fuel that we burn in Australia to run them. In fact, about 75% of the stuff that we import into Australia gets here via ship. So without those foreign crews on those ships bringing the stuff we like into Australia on container ships, and without the foreign crews on the bulk carriers sending our resources to the world, well, without them, life in Australia as we know it simply stops. But right now, these guys are trapped at sea. And industry insiders say that Governments, both state and federal, are partly to blame. So you know what I'm looking for. I'm seeing if they've had a chance to crew change those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to... See. Dean Summers is trying to track down some ships. So he came from Korea, then he's been in China and before China, Arabia, Saudi, and Italy. Right. Well, it wouldn't have crew changed in any of those ports. He's driving around near Port Botany, constantly communicating with colleagues who are feeding him information on a speakerphone. Can you tell me who the crew, oh, yeah. remind me who the crew are again? India. And? Greek and Latvia. Okay, we'll follow that up in Melbourne. Dean's kind of a big guy. He's bald, he's got very brown leathery skin because he's an ocean swimmer and he's a former seafarer himself. He's also the national coordinator of the ITF, the International Transport Workers Federation. Uh, can you have a look at the trading pattern? Yep. Right now he's hearing that there's ships about to dock in New South Wales with guys on board that have worked way past their contracts and he wants to see if they're okay. One in Port Kembla 
It's just grabbed okay. his attention. Before Paul Kemble was in Fremantle. Yeah. And before Fremantle, it was in China. Before China, Korea. And before Korea, New Zealand. Oh, okay. So another one that wouldn't have had a chance to crew change. So we get to Port Kembla, and Dean finds the ship he's looking for. It's a bulk carrier called the Global Future. On the ship's back deck, there's this soil damp flag hanging against the grey sky. So this flag on the back deck here is Panamanian flag. It signifies and tells the world that this ship is registered in Panama. That's one of the more notorious flags of convenience, Panama, Monrovia, Liberia. In fact, everything about these ships that are flagged in these countries are deregulated, leaves seafarers even more vulnerable with fewer and fewer opportunities to stand up for themselves. Ships are often not registered in the countries where their owners live, but are instead registered in countries with loose shipping regulations that are also notorious tax havens. And that makes the ship owners hard to track down, hence they're called flags of convenience. 40% of the world's commercial ships fly the flags of Panama, Liberia or the Marshall Islands. The world's merchant fleet itself is worth almost $1 trillion, and that's just the value of the ships themselves. But the seafarers who crew them are often paid less than $5 an hour, and so they're hired from countries where labour is really cheap. Like the Philippines. Is everybody Filipino on board? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Every, Captain yes. How long have you been on board? Everyone on the global future is Filipino a country that supplies roughly a quarter of all the world's merchant seamen. Dean heads inside the ship to speak with the captain. We're we coming in here. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Captain. Captain, I'm Dean Summers. I'm the national coordinator for the ITF. Yes, sir. The inside of these ships all look pretty similar. There's narrow corridors and pokey little rooms kind of looks like budget motels with their best years behind them. Seafarers even have a nickname for this life at sea. They call it the Laminex Prison. So, Captain, uh, welcome to Port Kembla. Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to take the opportunity to come and have a look at a few things, get a few documents off you. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly the IMO crew list, and I just want to make sure that no one's been on for too long on this ship. Dean sits down with the captain in what they call the mess room. It's got laminated tables and shiny blonde wood. It's where the crews eat their meals. Looking here, we've got 12 months, 13 months. Some people have been on here for a very long time. Dean looks at the crew list and sees that at least one member of the crew has been on board for more than a year. So we see here the ordinary seaman's been on for 13 months. That guy and a few other crew members appear in orange overalls and face masks. Captain, in your... Yes, sir. Hello. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Uh, I'm Roberto Cabarang, sir. He's extended his contract because with COVID all over the world, he just feels safer on the ship and he can also make money so his kids can go to school. It's okay because we avoid the situations or the COVID pandemic. And you think it's safer on the ship than being outside? Yeah, yes, sir. It's safer because when one of us gets sick, uh, everybody will <laughs> everybody will sink also. That's why we decided 
not to go out. Ironically, the pandemic means that there's a fate for seafarers that's worse than being stuck at sea. And that's being stuck at home and not making any money at all. Because people aren't just being stopped from getting off ships. New crews can't get on ships either. Based on my experience, um, time mass vacation is too long. Third mate Sherbert Bondock joined the Global Future in August this year. But that's after 10 months of being at home with no work and no pay. He even had to borrow money from friends to survive. So he's in no hurry to get off again. Uh, I have a children to feed, to send to school, but um, you have to be money-wise. Very, very hard to take the budget for daily food, uh, bills and everything. And at least if you hear the kids are going to school. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's why I'm very happy to stay on board again. On this ship, everything's in order, and everyone who's on board wants to be here. But on many ships, there are seafarers who haven't signed extensions and who are at sea, effectively against their will, fighting to get home. OK, so, Sandra, we've got a couple of urgent things on today. How long have these guys been on board? They've been over 11 months, I think it was. Some of them, I think Kelvin said there was one or two, 20 months. 20 months. Yes. Back at the ITF's office in Sydney's Haymarket, Dean gets word of a seafarer that hasn't been relieved for 20 months. All right, we really have to push this one up the top. If people have been on there for 20 months without a day off, then we need to really push that up. Can you find out the next port? Either talk to Kelvin or the... The way it works is that contracts at sea for ordinary seamen are normally about nine months, but it can be extended to 11 months in extreme circumstances. But because of the pandemic, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority ruled that 14 months was the new maximum limit. That's set to shift back to 11 months in February next year. And if ships dock in Australia with crew kept any longer than AMSA's limits, they can detain them until those crew have been sent home, but it can't catch them all. Hello, is that you, Calvin? Yes, yes, it is, Calvin speaking. Hi, Calvin, it's Dean, how are you? Very well, thanks, mate. You've had your hands full with the uh, AR Valentini. The company doesn't seem to be very enthusiastically in uh, trying to get this guy off. Dean and Sandra try to help that sailor, but it's too late. He's already sailing away through the Malacca Strait. This is a guy that spent the last 20 months either working or stuck in a tiny cabin like Rombert's. I want to show you my room. Here is my cabin. This also I lie here when I watch my laptop. There. As you can see how small is the cabin. His tiny room is neat and tidy. The small porthole provides the only natural light. His bags are packed and ready so he can escape as soon as he can. Every break time I go to my cabin, I try to manage myself, not to get bored, not to get frustrated, not to get depressed. Just like that, sir. Rombert says he thinks the ship is heading towards the United States, but there's still no word about when or where he'll be getting off. We're back in Sydney, and Dean Summers and I are paying a visit to Port Botany today. 
Sister Mary, this is Jeff. Hi, Sister Mary. How are you? Nice to meet you. We'll get out and we'll have a. We'll give you a hand with this stuff. Oh, no, I don't be worrying about Oh, it. yes, I Oh, yeah, that'll be. We've got time for a cup of tea, I think. Sure, we? sure. Dean's invited me for a cup of tea with a nun. We find Sister Mary Leahy outside her donga at the port, her freight container office. Inside, rows of Christmas-themed gift bags line the walls. Sister Mary tells me they're full of free goodies for the seafarers. Then she offers me a biscuit. We're not taking seafarers' biscuits there, are we, Sister Mary? No, no, but I... If they tasted about mollive soap, <laughs> they might have been mixed in with the... No, no, they're perfectly clean for the visitors. <laughs> yeah. uh, people donate clothes sometimes, good things like hoodies and T-shirts the seafarers love. But you don't know if they're in the engine room, they've got another... Carrying her care packs, Sister Mary is one of the few regular people allowed on board to visit the seafarers. And she tells me they're desperate for information. A lot of them don't really know how things are going globally with borders. And they're always asking me, will I be able to go home? Is the border open? Um, so they're not getting a lot of information. Sometimes she'll be the only other face they see for months. Like for 14 months, they're constantly passing each other, going up and down the stairs, looking at each other. And having lived in a convent myself, I know that that can be a challenge. But I could have walked out the door, but they can't. Sister Mary's small operation at the port doesn't even have power connected, so she starts up a generator outside the office. As we chat, she wonders how we've allowed ourselves to forget about these people who bring us so many of the things we depend on. What's the greed that's happening in society? That these people somehow have to sacrifice their lives for other people. I won't give it a just, uh, <laughs> into coffee. But, you know, I just... That, that's wrong, isn't it? Yes. Isn't that, that is slavery, I think. It is slavery. Acceptable. We're, start, we're yeah. starting to talk about modern-day slavery, and we're saying that, and I'm, I know that Sister Mary agrees with me, is that if somebody's finished their contract and they want to go home and you force them to go back to sea, that's slavery. It's forced labour. Federal government is just silent on this, just nothing, not a pulse. But, you know, unless people like Sister Mary and others are banging on the door, then no one's going to hear about it and seafarers will just be forgotten. Tonight, an urgent call to passengers who disembarked from a Sydney cruise ship. Nearly 3,000 may have been exposed to coronavirus. The Ruby Princess cruise ship disaster in Sydney back in March crystallised Australia's perception of ships as incubators of disease. Foreign crew members were shuffled between ships in preparation for setting sail home. The latest development in frightening times. We're all scared. We're all scared. I'm scared. We're all scared. It was one of the biggest and deadliest COVID-19 super spreader events in Australia. Tonight, a coronavirus cluster on board a bulk carrier off the Pilbara coast. COVID's also come to Australia's busiest ports on ships servicing the resources industry. Last month, seven Filipino crew members on the iron ore bulk carrier, the Vega Dream, tested positive for COVID-19 while anchored off Port Hedland in Western Australia. One of them was hospitalised, but six others were left on the ship COVID positive. The ITF's Dean Summers was not impressed. 
one of the worst things I've ever seen, and yet at BHP's insistence, this fully loaded cargo, or BHP cargo, out of Port Hedland, was let sail from Port Hedland into international waters. It's outrageous. And some of the excuses I've heard is, well, they were young. I think what they really meant, well, they're not like, you know, people we really need to be worried about. It was insulting. It was disgusting. And the Australian Federal Government has to be held accountable for that. The federal agency, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, was involved in the decision to send the Vega Dream away with infected crew. Mick Kinley is AMSA's CEO. In our discussions with WA Health and how they assessed the risk on board, um, eventually we got to the point where we agreed that the risk was manageable and the ship could sail. Um, as you, The risk was assessed as being low because of the age of the crew and, and their condition. And certainly uh, we had, were getting temperature recordings from the crew um, each day as they went north and all indications were that, that, that um, they actually arrived up there quite safely and healthily. Do you understand that uh, given the unpredictability of COVID-19 that some people might think it's a bit shocking that um, potentially, you know, ultimately very sick crew members were just sent back over the horizon and away from Australia? The crew on board certainly were not displaying symptoms. If anyone had needed the medical treatment, uh, they would have been taken ashore and, and they were being managed appropriately. Um, not every case of COVID in Australia, even if they were on, in port, would be brought ashore. So not every case of COVID in Australia goes to a hospital. Just calling Ron Burt. There's really bad connections to these ships. Hello? Hello, sir. I'm sorry. I'm lost. Lately, I've had a bit of trouble getting back in touch with Ron Burt as he heads towards the US coast on the MV Starlight. When I finally get hold of him, he tells me he's still not exactly sure where he's going. For a moment, sir, we are still in the... Pacific Ocean, and uh, we don't know yet the ports that we are going to go. And how long have you been at sea? I'm now 15 months on board, sir. 15 months. And have you signed extensions? No, I don't have signed extensions. And what does the captain say? What do they say about you wanting to leave? We cannot go home because of the pandemic worldwide. I've heard that on other ships, including one that docked in Australia, contract extension signatures were forged to make it look like the seamen wanted to stay on board. That hasn't happened on Ronbird's ship, but he still can't go home and feels like he has no choice but to keep working, even though his contract's expired. If we stop work, they will cut up our wages. They, they tell us frankly that maybe they will cut up our wages if we stop the work. The MV Starlight's management told me that as long as the crew are on board, they will get paid. As an able-bodied seaman, Ron Burt earns about 400 Australian dollars a week for 80 hours of work. That's less than $4 an hour. Can you hear me, Ron Burt? His connection drops out again. But Ron Burt starts sending me video answers via Facebook. 
He tells me he started emailing the ITF, that globally affiliated union that Dean Summers works for. I already seen him an email about the situation here, about our status, uh, especially we are work too much beyond our contract. He's hoping someone there might be able to help him get off at the next port in the United States. Those emails eventually get the attention of one of Dean's colleagues, Martin Larson, an ITF inspector in Portland, Oregon. I catch an email that Ron Burt has contacted ITF London, the Seafarers Help Desk. They send me an email that says, hey, you have a vessel arriving and there's issues on board. My concern was that he said there was possible need of medical attention. So immediately the priority goes up. By the time I made contact, no, it was just that people wanted to go home. But sometimes if you cry wolf or fire, you get more attention. I told him I would meet them at the vessel arrival. It is loading grain here for Korea and China. And so I went and talked to the captain. Of course, the captain is working for the company. Would not. He was nice. He was cooperative. Um, but he was not going to go out of his way to make this happen. Trying to get a seafarer off a ship during COVID can be a painstaking process involving multiple actors in different jurisdictions. So then I started contacting the vessel agent. I started contacting Greece. Um, woke him up at nine o'clock at night and we had a conversation. Uh, he was not uncooperative, but I've heard too many stories before. I'll take care of it. I take care of it. I promise I'll, I'll send you an email tomorrow. I promise. And nothing happens. So long as the ship sails, their interest stops. Martin starts working behind the scenes to get Rombert off the ship. Rombert's glad that he's finally got someone in his corner, but he's still not getting his hopes up. Rombert's ship, the MV Starlight, used to be flagged in Liberia and now flies the flag of Cyprus. It's owned by a company called Light Shipping Limited, which was incorporated in the Marshall Islands, a known tax haven. That company is in turn owned by Eurodry Limited, which is based in Greece. The vessel is managed by yet another affiliated shipping agent company called Eurobulk. The company is stock exchange listed, so uh, it's a lot of shareholders. As crew manager at Eurobulk in Athens, Captain Mathios Rigas runs crew changes for Eurodry's fleet of seven ships. I'm the crew manager of uh, Eurobulk the position in Athens and the one who coordinates the whole crew changes for the whole fleet of the same company. I ask him about the ship that Rombert stuck on. Starlight, yes. Starlight is a vessel of our fleet and it's a vessel full Filipino. Uh, Nationals, which is actually the last vessel of our fleet that we have managed to perform crew changes yet since March 2020. Captain Regas claims that the crew change crisis has simply made it impossible to get sailors like Rombert Bebat home. For instance, I have an example to tell you uh, that happened in Australia, that uh, two seafarers wishes to disembark, but the county did not allow them to disembark. So basically he's saying that the situation Rombert finds himself in is the fault of governments like our own here in Australia. As an island nation, Australia has the fifth largest movement of shipping freight in the world. But ports are primarily owned by states and territories and often leased to private operators. 
And when you start asking questions about the crew change crisis, everyone just seems to point the finger at everyone else. The Federal Transport Minister, Michael McCormack, flatly declined to be interviewed about this, saying it's mainly a state issue. On the 9th of April this year, the National Cabinet agreed that the Australian government and all the states and territories implement a, quote, consistent and immediate exemption to allow crews to transit to and from their ships across jurisdictions. But that never happened. We're one of the few stories, I think, out of National Cabinet where it was a complete fail. Theresa Lloyd is the CEO of a group that represents the shipping industry in Australia, Maritime Industry Australia Limited. You know, the idea that they come out with an agreement, but then nobody actually holds to it. It was really disappointing, and we've never really recovered from that. And I think if we need a dedicated task force to deliver that, then the sooner it happens, the better. This is a really rare situation where the employers and the unions are in furious agreement. Dean Summers from the ITF says that the problem needs a national approach. When we sit on the same side as employers, international employers, uh, local Australian employers, and everybody else who understands shipping is on this side of the table. You know, federal prime minister is just shrugging his shoulders. Oh, no, there's nothing to see here. The states have got it in hand. Well, the states are crying out. Every time we talk to a state uh, politician, they want guidance and leadership from a federal government. Without leadership, crew change arrangements across most states and territories are likely to remain patchwork and often impractical. Hello, Rumba. Hello. As he nears the United States, I manage to re-establish contact with Rombert. It turns out the ship is heading towards the port of Vancouver. Also, he tells me that Martin Larson, the local ITF inspector, has been in touch. The company promised to him that uh, the company promised again that they will repatriate us in the country of Japan. So the company says he can't get off in Vancouver. But he's told that when the ship gets to its next port in Japan, he can go home. This news is no comfort to Rombert. He tells Martin he's heard it all before. But I replied to him that I'm afraid, sir, that they will cancel again because uh, four times promise and this is five times promise. They do it before, so they can do it again. Martin Larson agrees, so he comes up with a new, slightly more forceful approach. And he said uh, he contacted already the U.S. Coast Guard to stop the sealing of the ship. This is what crew changes can come down to. Local authorities enforcing the minimum standards for seafarers set out in the internationally agreed Maritime Labour Convention, or MLC. The Australian Maritime Safety Authority's CEO Mick Kinley says that so far this year, 11 ships have been detained for MLC deficiencies. The solution to this problem isn't simple, but it's not rocket science either. Basically, we need a streamlined way that these seafarers can get off their ships, quarantine in a hotel for a while, and then get on a plane home. It's totally doable. And we know it's doable because it's already happening, especially at one Australian port, Brisbane. Pilot, tugs on 16. Yeah, we're about 10 minutes to sea channel. We're right to get coming. Yes, Andrew, we're actually out uh, waiting for you. So, 
Look, my name's Angus Mitchell and I'm the General Manager of Maritime Safety Queensland. And at the moment I'm standing down here in the Port of Brisbane and I'm just outside of uh, our operations base and also our vessel traffic uh, service centre. It might have kept its land borders shut for much of this year, but Queensland has won the reputation of being the only place in the country with crew changes sorted. How it works is you know, when they finish their contracts and they get off on our ports, they go onto that dedicated and isolated bus that doesn't interact with the population into a hotel quarantine for whatever period's necessary until their flights can take them home. And we've been doing that really since, I guess it's been the beginning mid-May, and we've seen about three and a half thousand seafarers go through that system. That's an average of 250 crew changed every week since May. A key reason the system works is because flight arrival caps don't apply to foreign seafarers in Queensland. So what needs to happen next? Well, it seems like we need more ports to basically get their act together, like Brisbane has. And then the system in place in Brisbane also needs to be put in place on the other end, where a lot of sailors live, places like the Philippines. It's what the ITF's Dean Summers calls a green lane. Or safe corridors in which we can have different places around the country that we can be assured of, fresh crews coming from those countries that I described, to join their ships and keep those ships running. And we should have hubs like we do in Brisbane, maybe in New South Wales. So work on a few hubs, and then we find other governments around the world are doing the same sort of things. Maritime Industry Australia Limited CEO Theresa Lloyd argues seafarers need to be classified as essential workers. I think the concept of the green lane has a lot of merit and is one of several tools that could be implemented to facilitate crew change. Almost certainly it would require the federal government and the state governments that are involved in this to identify what the standards are that they want met, to approve that they are being met and probably to audit that along the way because I don't think that anyone would be satisfied with letting industry run with something as important as this without that level of oversight. Hello everyone, good morning to Sir Joff. On October the 26th, a new video arrives from Ron Bird. He's got some good news to tell me. Uh, now, this day, maybe this day, maybe this is the happiest day of my life on the ship. Why? Because I'm soon I'm going home. Almost 15 months. 15 months and we are... Uh, Embark the ship July 17, so today is October 26, 15 months and 9 days. A day later, after 15 months and 10 days at sea, another video lands. It shows Rombert singing to himself behind a surgical mask, looking jaunty in a casual flat cap and... He's walking off the MV Starlight. Last step. My last step of the ship. But it's a bittersweet departure. Rombert's worried about the crewmates he leaves behind. I will pray that the crew will uh, release in this November, 14 days from her sailing from here to Japan. I hope they can go home also like me. Like thousands of sailors around the world, some of Ron Burt's crewmates are still stuck on that ship. So, 
my feeling now is a mixing of happiness and little sad because I'm happy that I, I can go home and uh, a little sadness because the other crew is will remain. Martin told me that the crew must stand together but they are afraid. Remember how Rombert wanted to get home for his daughter's 15th birthday? Well, he made it. After 15 months away, his now 15-year-old daughter is dancing in front of him around a table and there's a big red and white birthday cake just in front of her. We... Don't invite others because of the pandemic. Our, only our neighborhood, mother of my wife and his sister, will come. My youngest, Veronica. Say hi. Say hi. To celebrate, Rombert lets us in on a little Australian secret about his favourite song. You know that band? Maybe that band is came from Australia, the Lucky River Band, LRB. Uh, the one, uh, the one of my favourite songs is The Cool Chains. When there was thing my life was missing. He's talking about the Little River Band and their song Cool Change. And the time to see alone, ah, that's all. <laughs> Sailing on the cool and bright clear Background briefing sound producers are Lila Schunner and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Tim Jenkins. Fact-checking by Connie Aegis and Benjamin Sveen. Supervising producer is Tim Roxburgh. Our executive producer is Alice Brennan. And I'm Jeff Thompson. You can subscribe to Background Briefing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Listening.